Okay, something I've opened up about a little bit, but honestly need to talk about more is how much PMS really affects me. It's definitely worsened over the last few years for me, and it can honestly take me down for a few days every month. That's why if you struggle with the same thing, I could not be more excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Jubilance, and they're offering my listeners $10 off with the promo code HAPPIEST. Jubilance is the leading evidence-based scientific approach to PMS relief. They're backed by scientific and clinical trials that are placebo-controlled and showed significant relief of PMS, anxiety, irritability, sadness, stress after just one month of daily jubilance. I feel all of that on such an intense level when I'm PMSing and their mission is to help menstruators live symptom-free because no one should have to suffer every month. Try jubilance for $10 off by visiting jubilance.com happiest or use the promo code happiest at checkout. That's J-U-B-I-L-A-N-C-E.com slash happiest for $10 off. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Something that's so important to stay aware of in sobriety is how our social battery is doing. I really noticed in my early sobriety, I had basically no social battery and I needed a lot of time to recharge after being social. Even at this point in my sobriety, it can still be hard to set boundaries and to know when to say no and put my own needs first, especially at this time of year when the weather's getting warmer and social gatherings might be picking up. That's where therapy can be really helpful. Whether you struggle with setting boundaries, people pleasing, or you're trying to process all the emotions you're no longer numbing with alcohol, therapy gives you the tools and positive coping skills to work through it all. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. What I really love about BetterHelp is that it's entirely online. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happiest today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash happiest. Hello and welcome to Happiest Sober Podcast. I'm Madeline. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you've all been having an awesome week. I am bringing you such an amazing guest today. Um, This week I'm chatting with Ash Butters and she is the host of a really, really great podcast called Behind the Smile. Um, Ash is my first Australian guest that I've had on, which is really fun for me because um, if you've been following me for a while or listening to this podcast for a while, then you might know that I spent a year in Australia in 2018. So immediately there was such a connection there. She is so much fun to chat with. You might have noticed this is a bit of a longer episode and that's just because I was just loving chatting with her so much. So I won't make this intro too long, but we're going to get to hear all about Ash's story. Um, It's super inspiring and you're for sure just going to take away so much from this conversation. So with that being said, I won't make you wait any longer to hear it. So here is my conversation with Ash. Hey, Ash. Hey, Maddie. How are you? (laughs) Good. How are you? I'm so, so good. It's, um, it's actually early morning here on a Friday. I had a great sleep last night. I didn't have to teach super early this morning, so I'm thrilled. I'm really happy to be here with you. Oh, yay. I'm so happy to have you. I know the time difference is such a such a mindfuck. Eh? It's 6 p.m. here for me <laughs> on Thursday. <laughs> Dialing in from the future. I can confirm yeah, all right? as well. Oh, I love it. Well, it's so fun to have you. You're my first Aussie guest. Yay. What an honor. Right. And as we were just, we were just chatting about before we hit record that I spent a year in Australia and we were in the same place at the same time there. 
this for a good is six wild. Months. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to one of your earlier episodes where you were talking about your time in Australia and when you were describing where you worked and where you lived, I was trying mm-hmm. to put the pieces together and we just <laughs> figured out, didn't we, that we were there at the same time because I was there for eight years from mm-hmm. 2014 and we lived within a couple of kilometers from each other, I think, yeah. by all accounts. So it's just crazy. I mean, the chance of us being in the same venue drinking at the same time is super, super high. For sure. Like I had a a lot of time drinking at the bar you thought I worked at. (laughs) Yeah. You said you used to come to the bar that I worked at on Sundays. I worked a lot of Sunday shifts there. Like I'm convinced. I bet I, I bet I served you a drink. Totally. Well, they're kind of two iconic bars in Sydney. They are. Like right on the water there. So I think if you live in Sydney, particularly in the Eastern suburbs, you've definitely Mm -hmm. frequented those places. Yeah, for sure. Oh my God. But yeah, the, my time in Australia was my messiest time. My nicknames in Sydney or my nickname in Sydney from my roommates was messy Maddie. (laughs) (laughs) I got Hurricane Ash. (laughs) You got called Hurricane Ash? Yeah. Cause I would literally, I lived in Sydney, but I'm from Melbourne originally. And yeah, I would come back and visit my friends, particularly like I had FOMO, so I could never miss a a birthday or a baby shower or obviously a wedding. So I'd be flying back and forth all the time. And every time I came back home, I would just be like this hurricane or this tornado that, you know, landed on the Friday night straight into it, drinking for 24, 48 hours, creating all of this chaos, all of this mess. And then I'd just fuck off again. Everyone's like, what the hell just happened? Ash is here. (laughs) Oh my God, that's too funny. How do you find um, drinking culture in Australia? Mm, That's a good question. I think it depends where you grew up. Uh, It's definitely, I think, a stereotype that Aussies are big drinkers. And I and I can confirm that I lived in an environment where that was absolutely the case, but I would Mm -hmm. never want to suggest that that's the norm for every single Australian. Right. I think that would be quite narrow-minded to make that assumption. But definitely where I grew up, which was in Bayside in Melbourne, Australia, everybody drank, our parents drank, all social situations were accompanied by alcohol. And we started drinking, my friends and I at a really early age, I started drinking at 12, which was particularly oh, wow. early. Yeah, But most of my friends at least by 13, 14, we'd be invited to parties and our parents would normally buy us like one or two of those, you know, stollies. Did you have those? Um, What are they? That we called them stollies or lolly water drinks. Um, I I love your lingo. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) But I just have to say, I'm going to show you when we get off. My sister and I had, we created a joint note called Aussie lingo. And it's so yes. long and we would both add to it the whole year we were there. But anyways, okay, you had your yeah, stelly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There'll be plenty of that today, I think, in this conversation. I love so it. So we drink these stollies, which were these like, you know, pre-mixed, almost like lolly drinks that had had a small amount of alcohol in them. Mm-hmm. And so we'd get given one or two of those and we'd go to the party. So it was it was from a really early age that that we all started drinking. And you know, some people continued and then that that drinking became more important and a bigger part of the social fabric. And then other people didn't. And I've got friends that I can still remember, even from a young age, they could just take it or leave it. They weren't that interested Mm. whether, 
there was going to be alcohol at the party. Whereas for me, it was like at the forefront of my mind, right. even from a young age, I was making sure that I knew where I was going to be able to get it from, how much I was going to be able to get, where I could get more if I wanted it, like all of that planning and control around how much I was going to drink was really, really prevalent for me from an early age. But yeah, I don't know. I think as I started to get older, I just started hanging out with people that drank like me. So it did seem like it was a really, really big part of the Australian culture but perhaps that was just a part of my world within Australia. Then again, they also say that, you know, if you want to work out if you're an alcoholic or not as an Aussie, just go to another country and watch people drink. And you start to realize that the way we drink here in Australia is quite unique. Right. Oh, that's so funny. I remember people when I was there saying like, oh, Australians and Canadians get along great because we all love to drink. And like, yeah. I was like, yeah, but it's it's really funny when I look back because like there were so many times because I was telling you, like I would finish my shift at bartending and immediately be on the other side of the bar ordering drinks. I remember my sister and I worked at the same bar and I would work the earlier shift and I would get off my shift, pull up a chair and sit with her while she worked and she would just serve me drinks. And (laughs) like thinking back, I'm like, yeah, like we all love to drink. But so often there were certain people working there like, wow, you're back at it again. eh?" (laughs) Mm. I was leading the the charge a lot. (laughs) Yeah. The other crazy thing for me was, you know, it was just so normal to drink to blackout. Like that's what Mm. I thought the end goal of a drinking session was. I was never shown how to drink in moderation. It was Mm -hmm. never a conversation in my household. And so I just thought it was really normal the way that I drank. I think that's why it took me so long to be able to identify that I had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol because it just seemed so normal. Right. So do you feel like you were Hurricane Ash from, from like the get go? Was it, was it, progressive? Like how did that all sort of Mm. unfold for you? I think from the very first time that I drank, well, I know this to be true. I drank to blackout. I passed out that evening, threw up the the whole lot. Mm -hmm. And that was at age 12. And I remember at the time falling in love with alcohol because what alcohol did for me was it quietened the voices that were in my head. So from a really young age, I had quite low self-esteem. I grew up in quite a tumultuous environment. My dad's an alcoholic. He's now in recovery, but he was drinking throughout my entire childhood. My parents had a very volatile relationship. There was a lot of passion, but there was also a lot of fighting. And as a child, I didn't really know where my place was. I felt quite uneasy and quite unsafe. And for whatever reason, I had made up in my mind that the chaos and everything that was going on at home was my fault. I think that's really normal for children to to blame themselves because we don't understand what's going on. I certainly didn't understand what alcoholism was and what that did uh, to people and to people's behavior. So I thought it was my fault. As a result of that, I told myself from a really young age that I wasn't good enough, that I was unlovable, that I was unsafe. And so all of these negative voices, which I think started off as a whisper, started to get louder and louder the older I grew. And the more I felt like, you know, I was really, I was, I was a perfectionist and I would strive. So I would always be doing things to try and 
get the not only the attention of my parents but the validation because I required validation to affirm my self-worth and so these negative voices started to get louder and louder and then I discovered alcohol and for the first time the voices just went quiet and there was this peace and this serenity in between my ears so I fell in love with that and I wanted it more and more and more so yeah from the very first time all throughout my drinking I was always a heavy drinker and like I said I sort of thought the purpose was to get blackout. I didn't really, I certainly had no concept of drinking alcohol to enjoy the taste or, and I had no idea. I had no idea actually, Maddie, until I got into recovery that people could have one or two and then put the bottle down or, or, or say I've had enough now. Like they started to get that warm feeling rise up in their stomachs that would rise up into their chest. And then they go, Ooh, Ooh, I think I've had enough. When that happened to me, that was the signal to say, all right, we're on, let's go. Yeah. Right. Like a polar opposite response to the exact same substance. Yeah. That blew my mind. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. I could never wrap my head around that either, (laughs) but yeah, I do think how growing up with those feelings and like thoughts about ourselves is totally a recipe for having a problem with alcohol because it does. It's like you quiet those voices for the first time. Right. And then it's probably like, where has this been all my life? Yeah. And it's that instant gratification. I didn't know any other place or any other thing that could do that. You know, a relationship couldn't really do that. Um, my, my work couldn't really do that. I was, I had, the evidence had shown me that no matter how much I strived and I achieved and I did well at school or I got the the part in the play, whatever I was trying to do at the time to gain that approval, I just, none of it was fast enough or quick enough to be able to quieten what was going on, that internal dialogue, which was just, it just, it became really vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was just this thing that I I leaned in on. And the interesting part of all of this was that I still had that really strong perfectionistic drive, that need to prove to everyone around me that I was a good girl in air quotes. Yeah. And so I, I was really good at hiding my drinking. That first time that I drank blackout, I was actually at a family function. It was, it wasn't a family function. It was a, it was a Christmas party, but my family were there uh, along with, you know, 500 other people. So they saw what I did that night and I and I got in a huge amount of trouble. I ended up getting grounded for like six months. And all that taught me was that I needed to get better at hiding my drinking. Like mm. that's where my head went. My head didn't go, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. It was like, that was the best thing I've ever done. I just need to work out how I can do this more often and not get caught. Right. So- then the manipulation and the dishonesty starts to play out. And I became really good at hiding it and projecting one version of myself to the outside world. But inside I was, I I was broken and I was really sad and I, I just wanted to disappear. And I, I was able to do that when I was drinking. Mm. I'm so curious if you struggled with perfectionism and feeling the need to be perceived as like a good girl, like, did you struggle with a lot of shame then about your drinking? Like even that first time when you blacked out and got in trouble and got grounded, like how Mm. did you 
how did you feel about it after the fact? I think absolutely there was a lot of shame. I don't know that I ever felt embarrassed because I had seen my parents drink like that. Mm, so again, it's really like normalized. I, yeah. So I didn't actually realize at the time that it was the behavior that I was getting in trouble for. I thought it was the fact that I was doing it so young. Okay. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, it does. In my head, I thought, well, I don't understand why. I'm just doing exactly what you guys do. I don't see what the big issue is. That was sort of the dialogue that was going through my head, which is where I then thought, I've just got to get better at hiding this. Um, So I didn't really have a lot of, I mean, yes, shame, embarrassment, no, but I was just angry more than anything else. I was angry that I think I had always craved the opportunity to sit down with my parents and have teachable conversations. But unfortunately, they just didn't have the tools to be able to do that with me then. Mm-hmm. We have a very different relationship now. I'm incredibly close to both of my parents. I literally live across the road from my mum oh, these days. Nice. Um, you know, we're best mates and and I love my dad to bits. My dad's been in recovery since 2010. So Amazing. yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a different different set of circumstances now. But to go back to your question, there was definitely shame. But like I said, I was I was a chameleon and I was really really good at hiding it. So from the outside, nobody really knew. Everybody knew that I was like I said a, a bit of a hurricane. Um, but because I was able to continue ticking life's boxes and doing all of the things that I was meant to be doing. You know, I I finished school, I went to uni, I got a degree, I traveled the world, I met someone, got engaged, got married, bought a house, like all of that stuff that I was meant to do, I I did. And yet the reality was, you asked before about the progression, that is definitely something that I identify with within me. I was able to keep my drinking to this sort of weekend binge drinking for a really long time, like 15 mm. years. It probably looked like that. Uh, and then towards the end of my drinking, that's when it really, really spiraled. And in, in 2018, I lost a really dear friend. And that's where for me, it was like a switch was flipped in my mind. And from that point on, I started drinking daily. And that's when it became, actually, to be honest, I did drink daily in 2009 when I traveled around Europe. I've never actually just, that's literally just clicked in my head just then. I have the same thing happen sometimes where like, I forget parts of my story until I'm in a very specific conversation and I'm like, oh wait, that happened. (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's because we were talking about how, when you were in Australia, you were drinking. I drink. Yeah. Yeah. Almost every day. So it's so funny how, again, we rationalize and we justify Mm -hmm, these things mm -hmm. in our minds. But the reality was, yeah, I spent a year drinking every day to the point where when I was in Europe, I was actually throwing up every day as well. I didn't realize at the time that I had obviously destroyed my stomach lining. And yet the rationale for me was to keep drinking. Like there was no consideration for even a moment that yep. alcohol could be the problem. I was like, well, I'm just going to have to push through this. And I managed to get to the point where I'd be able to drink, throw up, keep drinking. Mm. Anyway, that was a complete, complete no, like, that's digression. So interesting. <laughs> and I'm so curious. And same here. Like when I was drinking almost every day in Australia, I was like, my mental health suffered so hard. 
And mm. like my mom asked me recently, well, like, did you make the connection that it was the alcohol and like, think about stopping? And I was like, I mean, I'm sure I made the connection, but it was out of the question. Like no part of me wa- like wanted to stop for the first while there. But I'm curious, like, do you think that 2009 then was like, even after you got home from traveling, was it like a turning point? Because I often feel like my year in Australia, because I was justifying it probably, I assume same you were doing. I was like, I'm traveling for a year. This is a big party. I'm going to have fun. And that Mm. was my justification. But I think that that made my drinking cross a point that I wasn't able to really come back from. Like, I think Mm. that shifted it for me. Do you think it was the same for you? Mine was different, but not because of my own control. It was the set of circumstances that I was in at the time. So when I got back from Europe, I was in a relationship. I had started a very new relationship with the guy that I went to Europe with. So we had that year together. And then when we came home, we moved in with his parents who are teetotalers. And I went And that's when I went back and I did my degree. So if it had been up to me, I probably would have kept drinking every day. But the fact that I was living with my boyfriend's parents, I'd gone back to university. I had external factors, I believe, controlling the way that I drank. Mm -hmm. Because if it had been up to me, like I loved drinking, I would happily drink every single day, particularly if there had been no consequences. So I don't think it was necessarily my control or my decision, but as a result, no, I kind of got home and I actually really cleaned up my act from 2009 to 2012, sorry, 2010 to 2012 while I was doing that degree. But something is really interesting that I've identified that happened. And since I've you know gotten into recovery and I've understood, you know, I identify as an alcoholic, mm-hmm. I see alcoholism as a disease that centers in my mind. And that can affect me whether I'm drunk or sober. And what I mean by that is I went through that period where I wasn't really drinking that much. I had really pared it back, but my mind started to play. You know, the voices started to get louder again because I didn't have that elixir, that solution that I had used to quieten things down. Right. And what, how that eventually played out was, I ended up blowing up that relationship completely. You know, I, I started doing things like going out partying and not coming home. And I didn't have the tools to be able to communicate to my partner at the time, what was going on for me. But we talk about this irritability, this restlessness and this discontentedness. And that's what was happening inside me. Like I, it was a spiritual malady. I couldn't sit still. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And and this like, internal urge to want to blow up my life was just getting bigger and bigger Mm. and bigger until eventually I did. And that relationship ended completely my doing. Uh, And as a result of that, the the shame that I felt through my behavior and my actions at that time, I was also quite isolated from my social environment and where I'd grown up. I grew up in a very insular environment in a city where everybody knows everybody's business. And I felt like I couldn't even show my face walking down the street. And so my drinking started to really escalate again because I I just, yeah, I, I wanted to run. I wanted to hide. And that's what I eventually did. I, in 2014, I took a geographical and that's when I moved to Sydney because I was so full of shame. I had completely blown up my life here in Melbourne and I was like, I've got to get out of here. And that's what I did. And I 
I moved up to Sydney and ended up staying there for eight years. And that's when I could really drink the way I wanted to because nobody knew me out there. Mm-hmm. I was, I met a random girl in an apartment in Bondi, moved in with her and that like that, it just kicked off from there. And that's when it really started to to ramp up and there'd be a lot of midweek drinking, a lot of drugs, a lot of partying. But like I said, I still kept up this good girl image and I was yeah. still showing up to work every day, hitting KPIs, doing what I needed to do, all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really hard to identify that there was anything wrong with the behavior. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. I really relate to that with like, my life looked so fine from the outside. Yeah, I was a little messy. I love to drink, but like it was all in good fun from the outside. Um, That's like what you do in your twenties, right? Exactly. Exactly. Something, and this is kind of backtracking, but something I I'm so curious about is, so your dad got sober in 2010, you said, and like you had grown up with that sort of modeled as like normal drinking. And that was kind of how you rationalized it when you're younger is like, oh, I'm doing what my parents do. So it was fine. Like, how did you what what did that do to you when your dad got sober? Was that like a little crack in your in your mind about like mm. whether your drinking was okay? It definitely was a crack in the mind. I couldn't deny it. The fact that my dad had gotten sober made me question my drinking, but my dad had also hit rock bottom. Mm. So I kept using that as a measure of well, my life hasn't gotten that bad, yep. so yep. I must not be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Little did I know that that was what was on offer to me if I continued on that path, which I did. Mm-hmm. So I'm incredibly grateful to my dad for getting sober because he was able to gently guide me. He was never forceful. He was never, you know, I never felt like it was an ultimatum or that I had to get sober. But Every now and then, maybe once or twice a year, I would end up going out and having a night that was so massive and I'd either, you know, done something to embarrass myself or said something to hurt another human and I'd wake up the next day with this guilt, shame and remorse and I'd call my dad and he would take me to a meeting Mm. and I would sit in the meeting riddled with guilt and shame, unable to hear anything that was going on around me. All I was sitting there thinking about was myself. Yeah. And so unfortunately, I really didn't hear the message uh, and the penny just didn't drop. But I'm so grateful to my dad for those long conversations that we had. Sometimes we'd go and, you know, grab a coffee and my dad loves to write on um, serviettes or napkins. I don't know what you call them. (laughs) Napkins, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he's forever writing on napkins. And, you know, he would draw the diagram of the cycle of addiction and he would so lovingly and patiently try to help me to understand that I continued to repeat the same behavior over and over again, Mm -hmm. despite the negative consequences and that that wasn't normal. But again, I just, I just wasn't ready yeah, um, I, I had to get to the point where I, you know, the pain of staying the same became greater than the fear of change. Yes. And that's when I knew like something had to give. Yes. Oh, my God. I feel like choked up you talking about your dad because my mom's sober. It's like the power mm. of a sober parent. Eh? 
It's incredibly beautiful. Oh my God. I know. Um, so, okay. So what then led you like walk me through? So what year did you get sober, by the way? I got sober in February, 2020. Congrats. Oh, so you just passed your three years a couple months ago. Amazing. Congrats. Maddie. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So what kind of like led, what, what led you up to that point? What was kind of it for you then? Yeah. Look, I'll share a story with you and it's, it's a sad story, but it's important Mm -hmm. to share because it's a big part of the turning point I touched on earlier that I had lost a dear friend Mm -hmm. and that led me to that flip switching in my mind. I'll give you a little bit more context behind what happened. So I was engaged at the time and my partner's name was Max and Max is completely okay with me using his name in podcast interviews. He's used to it by now. (laughs) He's now my ex-husband. However, at the time we were engaged uh, and we lived with his brother in our apartment in Bondi. And the three of us were like the three musketeers, absolutely inseparable. And Max and I had come down to Melbourne for a wedding. It had been one of my school friends' weddings. So we flew down and we had the wedding on the Friday and we woke up on the Saturday morning. I was so hungover, like, oh, I can still remember how violently ill I felt. And Max and I had had a huge fight that night because I had gotten blind drunk, embarrassed myself tried to steal the microphone from the DJ and sing to the entire party, like so unnecessary. (laughs) But that's the kind of stuff I did when I was drinking. And, you know, we'd had a big argument and the next day, you know, it was like that really, oh gosh, that uncomfortable tension where you can cut the air with a knife and nobody's talking and it's, oh, still sends chills down my spine. Anyhow, that was the environment. We came back from the wedding because it had been down the coast. We drove back to Melbourne and we walked through the door and my, actually Max's phone rang and it was his brother's best friend saying um, that Dan hadn't come into work, which was really strange that he hadn't, he worked at the markets and he hadn't arrived, the markets in Bondi, which you would know. Mm -hmm. And um, we said to the friend, look, why don't you just go up to our apartment? You can jump over the balcony, get through the back door and just wake him up. He's probably slept through his alarm. And when the friend got to the balcony, he entered into the apartment. Unfortunately, he did find Dan. He was there, but he had taken his own life. And we got the phone call. It was actually my phone that rang. And I remember picking up the phone and hearing the words come through the receiver And I'm looking at my fiance and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, our lives are about to change forever. And I don't know how to stop this. And I handed the phone over and I saw Max fall to his knees. And in that moment, that's when I just thought it's over. And the fear, apart from the immense amount of grief from losing somebody that I loved so dearly, I was filled with fear because I didn't know how my partner was going to get through this. They had lost their dad five years prior to a an auto, autoimmune disease and that had really taken a toll on their family and, and Max was still grieving that. Mm. I thought to myself, how is he going to get through this? 
And I thought, how am I going to carry him through this? So it was like in my mind, something went off where I just thought, well, I'm just going to do the one thing I know how to do that will take away the pain and get me through this. And that's when the drinking really ramped up. The other part of this story, which is kind of crazy, is that we lost Dan two weeks before we were meant to get married. So we had the funeral seven days after finding out, and then the seven days after that was the wedding. And it was so bizarre because it was the same family and friends that had been at both events. And it was almost like that whole period, that whole month was just like almost like a slow motion silent movie when I look back at it. Like I can't quite understand how we got through it. I think everybody just went into auto drive and we just kept putting one foot in front of the other. But unfortunately, Max and I were never able to really recover. Mm -hmm. We went off to our honeymoon and, you know, Max just cried and cried the entire time. Like he couldn't get out of the shower. And sadly, Max, Max was a heavy weed smoker and I was a big drinker. And as a result, we just went into our own addictions Mm -hmm. and we were never able to really foster that relationship, that marriage and grow together. We just, we just grew apart. So sadly, two years after we got married, sorry, not two years after we got married, that was 2018 when we got married. Yes, it was 2020. uh, We, we, I went into rehab. So what happened was at the start of 2020, we'd had two years of this really unhealthy cohabitation where we were enabling one another, but also at the same time, not really communicating and falling into our own vices. And then Max decided that he was going to go to India because he wanted to, number one, he wanted to stop smoking weed but he also wanted to work out what was going on for him so that he could come back and we could work on the marriage. And I remember Maddie thinking at the time, well, this is awesome because I was so, I always played the blame game from, from the, from the very beginning. Like it was, it wasn't my fault. I was a big drinker. It was my parents' fault or it was the environment that I was in. So I had been blaming Max for that two years, particularly because he was smoking around the clock and I felt like I was really alone. And so I thought, well, it's your fault. I drink anyway. He went to India and I thought this is great because I'm going to prove to everybody and I'm going to prove to myself that it's not, it's not me. Mm -hmm. Even though by this time I was hiding mini vodka bottles in my underwear drawer, I was stashing alcohol wherever I could. I had absolutely become a dependent daily drinker. I had to drink every night and I had to drink to blackout to be able to even sleep. And he went away and I remember I lasted like a day or two where I had, you know, I was moderating my drinking and what that looked like for me would have been probably a bottle of wine a night. And it got to the Friday night and it was actually, I'll never forget it, it was Valentine's Day 2020 and I decided not to go to these work drinks. I was working for um, a big beauty company based on St Kilda Road in Melbourne. And I decided not to go to work drinks because I didn't trust my behavior at this time. I knew that if I drank, I couldn't guarantee 
where I would end up, what I would say, what I would do. And I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of my work colleagues. So I decided to go back to my mum's house because I was visiting. I'd been down for the week. And I went back to mum's house. And of course, I got a bottle of wine on the way home. And after I'd started having a couple of glasses of wine, my ability to make a sane and rational decision leaves me. And then I get a phone call from a friend who says, do you want to come out and have a drink? Sure, I can I can go out for one drink. That sounds like a great idea. So I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, I'm just gonna go for one drink. I'll be back in an hour or so. Got in the Uber, went to Richmond, and met up with this friend of mine. And we all know how the story goes. It wasn't just one drink. I walked through the door. It was either eight or nine o'clock the next morning. I can't quite be sure. And my mum was sitting there at the kitchen table and just the look in her eyes, it was like I, I, it was like I was seeing her heart break in front of me. And I just, I just fell to my knees and I, and I knew that I was done. Like I couldn't keep doing this. It was like, I finally realized that it wasn't anybody else's fault. This was me. This was the, my actions and my behavior were creating the chaos and the carnage that had become my life. I couldn't blame anyone else anymore. And it was at that point that I finally said, I need help. And I really meant it because I knew that I couldn't keep going on the way I'd been going. And I also knew that I couldn't stop on my own because I'd tried, I'd tried, told, I had promised myself every day for two years that I wasn't going to drink that day. And I'd broken that promise every single time. So from there, we, my mom actually called my dad because they separated when I was 18. My mom called my dad, who was actually just around the corner about to walk into an AA meeting. And he, he got in the car, he came straight over and the three of us sat there and we made a plan. And then a week later on the 24th of February, I walked into that treatment center, into that rehab back up in Sydney and I haven't had a drink or a drug since. Wow. Oh my gosh. First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. I can't imagine like you're going through your own grief because you were so close with him. And but like to witness that level grief from someone else. Oh mm. my gosh. Yeah. Mm. I'm so, so, yeah. so sorry. Um, Thanks. but wow, what what a story. And and mm. this is February 2020. Yeah. So you quit drinking amidst, you know, while going through grieving and all this stuff in your relationship. And then the world shuts down. Like how, (laughs) how, how was that time for you in those early days? It's so crazy. Like it really feels like a bit of a movie when I think about like, what, what the hell? But yeah. So I think it was around nine days after I came out of treatment. New South Wales went into their first lockdown. And we had, while I was in rehab, we'd had little whispers from the outside world that kind of some crazy things were going on. I was in a rehab where you weren't allowed phones. So the only contact you had with the outside world was a five-minute phone call once a day. And I remember we'd hear little whispers that things like toilet paper was was sold out in supermarkets. Oh my God. And think, like it was sounded a little bit apocalyptic. And it, I was thinking. It totally felt apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I, I came out 
And I went back home and I just, it, it was, it was the, it was a blessing and a curse. The challenge of this was that I wasn't able to do the outpatient program with the rehab. Um, I wasn't able to do any sort of in-person meetings or have that connection, which I think is so pivotal when you're in early recovery. But the blessing around all of this was that I all temptation had been removed. My partner wasn't a big drinker. He was still smoking weed, but he didn't drink alcohol really. He'd only have a drink if I was having a drink. So there was no alcohol in the house. I wasn't having to say no to birthday parties, to weddings, to functions. There was no FOMO because nobody was doing anything. Right. So for me, it was actually a really good time to step into early recovery because I actually had almost, I think it was a year before I had to go to my first function. So I had a year of sobriety under my belt before, and I think it was a wedding that I ended up going to. So I really do, I feel for people who are in early recovery, who are trying to manage their lives and like these big lives. And often they're very social because it's really, really hard. And I don't know how I would have gone had I had to show up to a wedding or a friend's birthday party in the first 90 days of my recovery. Like I really needed to stay wrapped in cotton wool um, and just focus on doing meetings and doing what I had been told to do every single day. You know, it was awesome. I, I remember like once Zoom happened, I would just, I'd get on an 8 a.m. meeting. Then I'd start my work day at nine, still sitting in the same spot. Like it was just, it it was really, it was safe. It was a safe experience. And at the same time, it was really hard because like I said, my partner was still using at the time and that had been one of my biggest triggers. And we were obviously locked in the house together. Yeah, but I think by tough. that- yeah, it was it was really hard. I actually found some diary entries recently and I was reading through a few of them and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like how did I get through that? Like it, it actually blows my mind. But I think once you have the gift of desperation, like I did, I just there was no other option. I was not going back to my old life. Mm-hmm. And I would I did absolutely everything that I was told to do. And I still run my recovery like that today. So what do you credit with like with maintaining your sobriety? Like what have been the things that have helped you the most? Mm. So there's a few things that are really, really important to me. I have a really solid morning routine. So what that what looks is like. It? Yeah. <laughs> so, I love mornings. I always want to hear. I'm always trying to figure yeah, my morning routine out. <laughs> my morning routine is really structured and it works really well for me that day. So I wake up in the morning and I... I have this chair that is my meditation chair just out in my living room. I live in a two-bedroom apartment. I always like to explain that to people because think people say, oh, I don't have the space to do this. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not living in a big mansion or anything like that. I've got this, (laughs) this little chair that's in my living room and next to it, I've got this table with my crystals, my incense, and it's just like I create the the mood. I light a stick of incense. I sit on my chair. I pray and I meditate. Mm. I meditate to quieten my mind because remember, I, ha- I have a busy mind. I have an alcoholic mind and that that head, when I wake up in the morning, just because I'm sober, that doesn't mean that my mind has gone quiet. I actually still have a busy mind a lot of times. And so what meditation does for me is it allows me to quieten my mind and to really get centered. And then I pray and I don't pray to a religious God 
Um, but I, I pray to something bigger than me. It's something that I was told to do really early on in my recovery. And it's become a foundational pillar for me because what I had to realize deep within myself was that when I was running my own life, things didn't go so well. Mm-hmm. So if I'm able to trust that there's something greater than me out there, and for me, it's an energy, like it's a universal energy. I know yeah. that there is something like, like, it's like my dad always says, when people struggle with this concept, he says, why don't you go down to the beach and try to stop the waves? Uh, and people look, yeah, and they're like, what do you mean? Like, I can't. And he goes, so there's obviously something greater than you out there, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's the proof that sometimes people need that that tangible evidence. And so I do, I sit there and I pray. And those two simple acts what they do is they bring me into this state of connection and this state of wholeness. And from that place, I'm then able to re-enter the world and be the best version of myself. And when I'm praying, like I'm not sitting there praying for things that I want, you know, I'm not saying, can I please get that job? Or can I please, you know, get that like podcast guest to come on my show? Like it's not, (laughs) it's not that kind of stuff. It's like, show me, like whether you say God, goddess, high power, like show me how I can be the best person possible today. Show me how I can be of service to another human being. What do I need to do today to help another human? Like it's this this notion of getting off myself and living a service-based life rather than a self-centered life. So those two actions are really, really important, prayer and meditation. Then while I'm there, I write my gratitude list. And gratitude has become a really important part of my daily practice because it's allowing me to reframe my thinking. When I was in addiction, my world was really small. And whilst I was an outgoing, bubbly person portraying this very happy-go-lucky version of myself to the outside world, the, the version of what was going on in my internal dialogue was incredibly negative. And it was the stuff that I would drink on. So right. by by practicing gratitude and starting to rewire my brain to see the beauty in life, to see the, the goodness in life, which is what you're doing when you do a daily practice of gratitude, you start to notice all of these amazing little things. Because again, it's not about the big things. It's not, I'm grateful today because I got a new car. That's not what it's about. It's like, I'm grateful today because I had a warm bed to sleep in last night. I'm grateful today because I know that I didn't harm anyone yesterday. Like these are the things that I couldn't guarantee when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. So that daily practice of gratitude. And then what's really cool is I share it with a group of women. Oh, I I love that. Yeah. And I get to read theirs as well. So that's really special. Then if I have time, which a lot of the time I don't, um, I will journal. So journaling is is really important to me, but I'm always really honest with the fact that it's not something that I get to every single day. When I was in my first year of recovery, I journaled every single day because wow. I had the time. But then one of the really cool things that happens in recovery is we get our lives back and more mm-hmm. so, right? Mm-hmm. So then your life gets really busy. And then I think it's about finding some of these practices. You need to start to work out where they fit in your life. Um, so that's been my morning routine. Then the the next thing that's really important to me is movement. I need to move my body. Moving my body for me is more about my mental health than my physical health. Of course, there are incredible physical benefits to exercise, 
But for me, when I don't exercise, my head starts to get foggy again. Um, Before I got sober, I was on medication for anxiety, which was 100% alcohol induced. Um, When I was a year sober, I was able to come off that medication, but I'm still really diligent around protecting my mental health. You know, and sometimes it'll be little things like it won't be anything outwardly obvious with with the exercise and the mental health. Like I, it's not like if I don't exercise for a week, I'll have anxiety and depression. It's not necessarily necessarily like that. It's sometimes it's a lot more insidious and a lot more subtle, and it will be things like I'll start to become more irritable again. I'll start to have less tolerance. I'll be less loving, compassionate, and kind towards those that I'm in relationship with. And I can't afford to be any of those things. Like, and I don't want to be any of those things. So I I move my body because it helps me to feel better about myself. And then that helps me be a better human to those around me. And the thing with movement is I always say to people, like, you don't have to be a marathon runner. I I did end up running a couple of half marathons <laughs> in, in, in early sobriety, but that was mainly because my my um my ex-husband loved running. So I was still trying to work out like who am I, what works yeah. for me. So I um what I would always say is you don't have to run the marathon, but what you can do is you can go out and just walk around the block for 15 minutes. Like start small. If that's all that you've got within your capacity, within your range, then that's fantastic. Yoga has become a huge part of my working life. I was practicing a little bit of yoga here and there before I got sober. I think because I was searching that for that spiritual experience, I was trying to find I was trying to figure out a way to fill the the hole in my soul. And so one of the ways that I was looking to do that was yoga because there's such an incredibly beautiful spiritual element to that practice. But unfortunately, like I continued to drink throughout that. So it wasn't, it wasn't working. Um, Then I got sober and I fell in love with the practice and I actually retrained and became a yoga teacher. So I get to, you know, every single day there's yoga in my life, whether I'm teaching others how to move their body or whether I'm doing that my own practice. And that's become really important. And then the third and final thing that is an absolute pillar to my recovery is connection. And that there's, there's two things underneath that umbrella for me. The first one is therapy. I started therapy while I was in treatment. And I have the same therapist to this day. She has just been a guiding light for me. She's 45 years sober and she just gets it. Yeah. Like she just, she understands how my mind works. I can be open and vulnerable with her um, and share my crazy. I also have a sponsor who, again, allows me to be completely honest, vulnerable and hear my crazy. And then I have fellowship. I have other people who are in recovery who like, like there's something so incredible about sitting down with another sober human being, because it's like, we've, we've been to war together, even though we may have never met each other before. Like there's this commonality, this unique understanding that's so, so special. So I stay really close to those people because that's where I feel most at home now. Uh, And I do that by attending regular meetings. I make phone calls and I I stay available to help people who are early on in their journey because I have to be open 
to giving back what was so freely given to me. I think that's part of the deal. Well, it has been for me anyway. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're my three things, morning routine, moving my body and connection. Oh, I love it. I I need to get back into yoga. I used to love yoga. I haven't done it in so long, but I remember I loved yoga before I ever drank, like in high school. And then I remember in my early days of drinking, being in a morning yoga class. And I was going out drinking that night to visit my sister at school. And I remember being in yoga and thinking, I'm so excited to drink tonight. <laughs> and being like, that's not great. <laughs> like having this awareness that that's oh not my a good gosh. thing. Like early days, early days. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's like, I used to always want to escape from my life. Like I didn't want to be Mm -hmm. in my body. I didn't want to be in the present moment. And then all of a sudden, like, and it doesn't happen overnight. Like I'm not trying to sell this dream. Like it it takes a lot of time and a lot of work, but what happens eventually over time, I'll speak for my own experience. What happened for me eventually over time is that the more distance I had from alcohol, the more I was able to start building this life that I wanted to stay in. So Mm. it was the complete opposite. And now I have this incredible life where like, I'm so present, like I'm so connected and I am so freaking here. And I love that. And if somebody like literally came up to me tomorrow and said, I'll give you a million dollars, have a drink. Like, no, thank you. Like, I'm just not interested or even like, you can drink again tomorrow without with impunity. Like you can drink tomorrow and not be an alcoholic. Like I'm not interested. This is just for me, like I, I'm really grateful that I've been through the journey I've been on because I think I've gotten the better deal at the end of all of this. It's so true. It's so true. And like, what a freaking powerful place to be, right? Yeah. So when you look, so that being said, like you, no one could pay you enough money to drink now. When you look at your life now as a sober person, Versus your life when you were drinking, like mm. what are the differences? How has your life changed? Ooh, I, I know it's that- such a big <laughs> question. <laughs> it would almost be easier to answer how like it hasn't. Like I, the, the, the changes in my life are so huge. And the crazy thing is, Maddie, is if you had told me at one week sober that at three years sober, all of these things would change. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I'm no longer married. Like that's a huge life change. And yes, that was an incredibly painful experience to go through, to go through a divorce. But I am so proud to say that Max and I are really good friends to this day. And we have so much love and respect for each other. We're both in new relationships and we just want the absolute best for each other. He, He got clean um, about a year after I left. And he's doing really, really well. So I went through this huge, huge life event being a divorce. I then moved home to Melbourne, which is something that I'd wanted to do for, you know, at least a few years, but I couldn't, I was so stuck. You know, I I couldn't do what I wanted to truly do. I don't think I was even really connected to my knowing, my inner knowing of what I wanted to do. But you get sober, you get clarity. And I made the decision to move home. And coming home was such a pivotal moment in my life because remember, I left Melbourne in a blaze of glory, thinking right. I would never return. <laughs> right. All Fresh of this start. Yeah. New place, new me. <laughs> and just like so much embarrassment and shame yeah. that, you know. And I came back and I was, I was, I was proud. I I was able to hold my head high. 
I moved oh, into an that's apartment. Such a good feeling and sobriety, right? Being able to be proud oh, of who my you gosh. are. Oh my gosh. Like self-esteem. What is this? Like I I didn't even know. Like, (laughs) oh my gosh. And so not only did I move back to Melbourne, but a really huge thing I did, which I've only realized in hindsight was a big move for me was I, I moved into an apartment and I lived by myself and I had never done that before. I'd always been really fearful of being alone. So I'd always been in relationships. I'd always been, I wouldn't say reliant on my partner, but I, I wasn't able, I had never really truly gotten to know myself truly because I'd always had somebody else in my life. So I came home, we went into that second year of lockdown where Melbourne was locked down for pretty much the entire year. And I just hung out with my little dog, Frank, and I got to know myself. And it was an incredibly powerful year of growth. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of fear, sadness, loneliness, But what I learned in that year was really how to develop that emotional sobriety, knowing that my feelings couldn't kill me yeah, and that whatever the pain was, like I could get through it. Yeah. So that was, that was really amazing. Then at two years sober, I decided to quit my corporate job. I'd been in the beauty industry for 15 years. I was in a really great sales role and I just quit and I went, and well, I didn't just quit. About six months leading up to that, I started to get this this inner knowing, this burning desire that I needed to do something bigger and that I wanted to work in the recovery space and that I wanted to help other people just as you're doing. And that's when I decided I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to go, I'm going to help other people and I'm going to use my story and I'm going to use my voice. And so that sort of started as a budding thought. And then as I got to that two-year mark within my recovery, I went, okay, no, I'm going to do it. And I ripped the Band-Aid off and I left that very stable, very secure job. Takes so much courage. Oh, my gosh. And I (laughs) I retrained as a yoga teacher because I was like, well, I'm going to need to make money somehow. Yeah. (laughs) And that's that's what my life looks like today. Like I, I, I I teach yoga. I have a podcast. I get to connect with incredible humans like you, none of which would have been possible if I was still drinking today. Yeah. And this is the thing. Like I said, if you told me any one of those things at one week sober, I would not have believed you. I couldn't possibly wrap my head around any of that, let alone all of that. And the coolest part is like, that's three years. What's going to happen at four years? What's going right? to happen at five years? Like, yeah, this is the coolest part about being sober. Like, I'm sure you agree. Like the world is truly your oyster. Yes. Oh my God. I, I love it. And also I want to talk about your podcast. Um, oh my gosh. I know we're like at an hour and I feel like I could keep talking to you for ages, but <laughs> your podcast has a very cool little angle. And yeah. like, how did you kind of come to, to that? Tell, so, tell us what it is. Too. Yeah. So my <laughs> podcast, it's called behind the smile. And the idea for the podcast came because what I had realized through unpacking my own story and my own recovery journey was even when I was at my breaking point, I was 32 years old. I, I didn't want to go on. Like I, I was, I had internally, I was just dead inside and I was broken. Yet if you had asked anybody around me, they would have said, Ash is fine. Ash yeah. is great. Ash is killing it right? Because I was so good at hiding behind a smile. 
and wearing these different masks. And it was something that I had learned to do, I believe, as a protection mechanism from a really young age to the point where I actually couldn't stop even if I wanted to. I remember being in rehab and sharing my timeline with my group therapy cohort And it took me about 45 minutes to an hour to read through this timeline where I had to identify from the age of zero to 17, every significant um, incident that had occurred. Little did I know at the time what they were trying to get me to identify was all of the traumas that I'd experienced. But I truly believed that I didn't have any trauma. Like I, that was because you don't know what you don't know, right? And your reality is the only reality you've ever experienced. So there's no until somebody shows you that that's not normal, um, you, you don't know. And I smiled through the whole thing. And I remember getting to the end of it and my therapist was truly concerned. She's like, Ash, do you realize you, you didn't break a smile? Like I'm sitting there going, and then my parents didn't come home. And then my brother and I had to do this. And then, and it's just like, um, are you okay? And that was the disassociation that was going on in my mind. And so what I realized um, as I came to this idea of wanting to share people's stories is like, I can't be the only one. I am sure that there are thousands of people out there that are just like me who are projecting one version of themselves to the world. But the reality is that's not a reflection of their internal world. So I'm wanting to really, my mission is to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma, and addiction by sharing stories of people who have gone through it, who are now in recovery, who can share their own experience, strength, and hope so that we can change this conversation. So that was the the little vision behind it. And It's just, it lights up my world to be able to speak to these incredible people every single day. We have conversations about sobriety. We have conversations about love addiction, codependence, trauma, everything, you name it. Um, And it's, that's what I think we've got to do. Like the more people that can throw away the fear and say, I'm going to own this. I'm not going to let this archaic stereotype of what an alcoholic is determine who I am. Like I'm going to own my, my story and be proud of the person I am. And I hope that in doing so more people can see the similarities as opposed to the differences and know that it's okay to get help and reach out and recover as well. Oh, so good. And I love that. I love kind of the meaning behind it. And I was thinking to myself before we hopped on our call that like, Because obviously, especially in the age of social media, everyone is projecting something online. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, it must really like having all of these conversations with people where they're showing you a picture, where they're like smiling and looking happy and then telling you like the story of what was actually going on. That must change how you even like look at social media, right? You know, it's interesting. I... Yeah, I don't think so. I, I I understand social media to be the highlights reel. Yeah, that's why I love the the sober community online because we we show it we show we it put all put it all out there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and that's why you know you asked me at the top of the show, is there anything off limits? And I said no because I am an open book because I think the minute that I start to hide things or that I start to withhold things. Number one, that's dishonest and I can't Mm. be dishonest. Like I I live a life of of rigorous honesty these days, but also like I'm letting the shame and the stigma win. If I'm afraid to be, to, to be hundred percent honest, like then, then I'm working against my cause and my mission. 
So that's why I am like, I put it all out there. But then the other thing is, you know, it's also been really helpful for me to have a lot more understanding and compassion for people because whilst back in the day, I probably looked at social media and felt like jealousy, um, you know, seeing people's perfect lives. Like I have such a different lens these days where I can see it and I, and I go, that's so nice for them, but I'm also sure that that's not the reality 24 seven. And I, and if they, I don't need to see what, what, what happens behind closed doors. That's, that's their business. But I know I just have a different barometer these days, which is Mm -hmm. it's, I'm, I live from a, a place that's a lot more peaceful and centered and calm within my own mind as well. I love that. And that's, I think, such an important lens to have because social media inevitably is like can be so tricky for comparison and Mm. and to have that lens of like, yeah, there's always a lot more going on that nobody knows about is is helpful in kind of combating that, right? Yeah. And you know what? The last thing I'll say on that is because everything I've said today, like I always like to caveat with I am not perfect. And 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 what I said just then, even like sometimes I will get on social media and I'll and I'll see something and I'll go, oh like I'll feel a sense of jealousy or oh, same com- competitiveness. Hard, yeah. But do you know what I do, Maddie? I put my freaking phone down and I and I go, oh wow. Right now, my energy field is not strong enough to be consuming this. So I don't Mm. sit there and keep scrolling. Like I have a really good sense of self and awareness today and I'm able to check in. And the minute I feel that come up, I just put my phone down. I go and do something else. I'll come. Like I have to be on social media. You like that's part of our jobs, right? But it's so important to really check in with where you're at when you're consuming it and taking responsibility and ownership for your own sense of self. Cause that's so, so important. Yeah. That's such a good boundary to have. And it's one that admittedly I need to work on big time. <laughs> um, but oh my gosh, that's so good. Um, oh, I really feel like we could keep chatting forever, but I want to ask you to finish us off. Um, what would you say to someone who's listening today, who's struggling with their drinking or they're in their early days of sobriety? What would you Mm. want to say to that person? If you are struggling with your drinking or you're in early days of sobriety, my advice to you would be in simple terms to sit down and shut up. What I really mean by that, though, in a more loving and compassionate way is take the cotton wool out of your ears and be open to what you're hearing and take direction. Very early on in my recovery, I was given the suggestion of finding somebody who had what I wanted, you know, finding somebody who and and when I say that, I don't mean the car and the house and the and the husband. I mean, like energetically find somebody, whether that's online, whether that's in an AA room, like wherever you're doing your recovery, just connect with other people and find people who are living a life that you, that you want, that you think, wow, like, look at her. She seems confident. She seems happy. She seems, she seems happy to be sober. Like I didn't even think that was possible when I was in early recovery. I was like, well, God damn, I'm going to have to be sober and just I'll resign to the fact that I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life, which could not have been further from the truth. Yeah. So if you can find people that are that are emanating 
the energy and the life and the light that you're drawn to. Stick close to them and do as they do. Mm. Listen to their advice and have this willingness to surrender. Because once I did that, then the the friction stopped. I stopped, felt like I, I, I no longer felt like I was fighting. Yeah. Like all of a sudden I was able to sit back in the flow of life and allow myself to be gently guided through this journey. And it was so much easier because for the 10 years prior to that, when I was popping my head in and out of recovery, like I was always fighting against it. I was always trying to find another solution because I, the last thing I wanted to do was give up alcohol. And yet if only I'd known what an incredible life I was going to have the minute I finally let go. But it's that it's that letting go that we have to wholeheartedly do to be able to step into this new life. But to anybody that's in early days or contemplation, like just know that you will live a life beyond your wildest dreams if you make the decision to give up alcohol for good. Like there's there's nothing good in drinking once it stops working so just give yourself that chance and hey why don't you commit to a year and then in a year's time if you want to go back out there guess what no one's going to stop you so yeah just like my love and my luck to everybody on the journey it's a wild ride but it's so so worth it oh so good goosebumps at you'll live a life of your wildest dreams So good. I love, gosh, it's so fun asking that question at the end because it's the same question and everyone has such different perspectives and things to say. And it's always so good. Um, Oh my gosh. It was so fun chatting with you. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that I served you drinks in Kuji and that now we ended up on a sober podcast together. And I love that story arc for us. (laughs) That is crazy. And I totally think it would be possible. So yes, I just go with that. That happened. (laughs) 100%. I love that for us. Thank you so much, Maddie. You're such a delight. And I just love that we've been able to connect and, you know, I'm sure that we'll stay in contact and I'm going to keep rooting for you from this side of the world because what you do is amazing. Oh my gosh. Right back at you. This was so fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you so much for listening this week. Be sure to give Ash a follow. Her Instagram handle is at Ash Butters, A-S-H, and then Butters with two S's on the end, B-U-T-T-E-R-S-S. Listen to her podcast. It's called Behind the Smile with Ash Butters. If you enjoyed this episode, then feel free to share it with a friend or share it on social media. Follow me on Instagram at Happiest Sober and at Happiest Sober Podcast. If you're enjoying the show so far, then please feel free to rate review subscribe and remember that new episodes come out every tuesday so i will chat with you next week i hope you have an amazing week remember that life's happiest when you're sober bye it's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol we see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences yet no matter what we try we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 
drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.